I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, Amy's like a golden retriever and I'm like a grumpy cat, talk about all the amazing advantages that come from living a bookish life. Each week we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author, awesome, a bookseller, bingo, a member of a book club, marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. In this episode, we chat with debut novelist Donna Gordon. While she has a long background as a poet and short story writer, she ventured into writing a novel when two ideas began swirling around in her head. Her novel, What Ben Franklin Would Have Told Me, tells the story of two characters, Lee and Tomas, who seem to have nothing that connects them, and yet they do. It's a novel that deals with some heavy topics in a way that doesn't leave you despondent, but instead, you feel strangely hopeful. Donna's book hits bookstore shelves today. But first, we had an exciting week. We did. There was a Gary. lot going on. Whew. Yeah. So earlier this week, uh, we interviewed the author Lisa Cross Smith, whose newest novel, Half Blown Rose, uh, hit bookstores this past week. And she had a launch event at our local independent bookstore, Carmichael's Books in Louisville, Kentucky. She is a Louisville author, by the way. Uh, And we interviewed her uh, for Carmichael's about her book, and it was lovely. It was. It was. It was fun. I, I really enjoyed it. And I didn't say anything. I don't think I said anything inappropriate. I, no, I think my you mouth didn't. was on point. Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. And I think she did too. Yep. I have I since a... seen her on Instagram. She has been in New York City. The cover of her book has been on the billboards in Times Square. And she's been going around to bookstores in New York City signing books. So. It's a very exciting time for Lisa Cross Smith. So kudos to her. And then you had a graduation yes. party for Nora, which is something that you hate to do. I party. hate, I uh, don't like to entertain at all. And I still, after yesterday, I still don't like to entertain. You know, some people are good at it and do a nice job and enjoy it. And, and I mean, I think it was fine. You know, it, it looked like I knew what I was doing, but inside I was not very happy so the the party ran from three to six which is about two and a half hours too long but uh, at 11 minutes after five I I checked my watch and I was like yes under an hour left I'm so glad so I got to meet your lovely mother though yes yes I had never met your mother in person before so that was very nice and she gave me a big hug and told me how tickled she gets when we crack up on the air (laughs) yeah I don't know (laughs) she's like you're a hot mess like yes indeed that is correct so that was very nice and then my husband and I had our anniversary on Saturday um, so how many years? 27? Uh, uh, it's t- actually 28, but I kind of... Oh my gosh. It's 28, but I hate to say it because it makes me feel so old. Oh, wow. But I was 21 when we got married. So, I mean, we were... You we all were wee babes. And interesting story about that. So when we were in Italy, my husband lost his wedding band. It was the last day we were there. And he couldn't find it we kind of looked through everything he packed up we still couldn't find it and so he asked the hotel staff if after we checked out if they could you know sort of scour the room and look for the ring and if so you know he would pay to have it shipped to us in the united states we never heard from them so we assumed that he never found it and you know when i think he was scared to tell me that he had lost the wedding band but honestly it didn't really upset me i mean it did in the way that, you know, it's a little sad and you think, oh, is that bad luck, you know? But in the end, it's just a thing. It's not like right. this rubber band that's like holding us together. Right, right. Anyway, fast forward two weeks and we went out to dinner at our favorite restaurant that we go to every year for our anniversary. And as my husband was getting dressed for that, he was putting on a pair of shoes that he took to Italy and he has not worn since we went to Italy because it's a pair of shoes he never wears unless I make him like (laughs) his good shoes. Yeah, I guess so. As he's getting dressed, he gets ready to put on his shoes. He finds the wedding band in his shoe on our anniversary, which I thought was just a perfect little anniversary story. So I'm hoping that that means that we have 
many more years of that you're not going to get divorced anytime soon yeah. yeah so like what else do we have going on well carrie and if we have a few more weeks left of this season and then you and i are taking a month-long break we are so we can read mostly <laughs> so we can read some things that not that we don't want to read the books that our guests write but we we need to have some time where we just pick books that that are on our want to read list and the thing is you know even though we say we're taking a month off we're not really because we're going to be recording episodes during that time we right. you just won't be editing any episodes so right. it's really a month off for you in terms of, well, you know, and we, your editing we, work. And we both will be taking vacations during that time, family vacations. Where are you all headed this year for your family vacation? Uh, so we're going to Kelly's Island, which is off the mainland of Ohio, and it's in Lake Erie. And so our family went to Las Vegas and California in December, and then Nora and I went to Ecuador in early April, and I didn't. I just couldn't do flights. Like I had ten flights on the trip to Ecuador, and I need to go somewhere where I can drive. This trip is about a five-hour drive, so it's not too far away. You have to take a, a ferry to get to the island, and it's in the middle of Lake Erie. So we've seen, I guess, three of the Great Lakes. So this will be our fourth one. So checking off something on our list of things that we've done. That's cool. How did you hear about Kelly's Island? Because I've never heard of it before. Uh, you know, I have no idea. You know, it's kind of funny because <clears throat> I've gotten pretty good finding not like unusual places, but finding places that either people have never heard of or it's the remote side. So like when we went to the Rocky Mountains, everybody else goes to the eastern side of the Rockies, which is really built up and popular. And we went to the western side of the Rockies where there's like no people. So I don't know how I found this. I think I was just looking for places that are four or five hours away from Louisville. And, you know, it brought me to Sandusky. Kelly's Island is close to Sandusky. And I don't want to go to Sandusky, but I was like, oh, so I kind of looked along the coast and didn't find anything. And then I happened upon Kelly's Island. So, you know, it's amazing what Google can, can help you find. So uh, one of the things I'm excited about seeing in Kelly's Island is it has what's called glacial grooves. It says, um, I'm reading this off the Kelly's Island Chamber of Commerce website, but it says our grooves are the largest and best accessible example of a geological phenomenon anywhere in the world. Apparently, let's see, you know, when the glaciers were moving, uh, as ice crept over the limestone of Kelly's Island, these glaciers created these gouges, these grooves. And so you can see these. That's so very it, cool. Yeah, yeah, which is just nerdy enough for my family that, that we're like, oh, that sounds cool, you know. So, and this is it's a small island. I think I read somewhere that, you know, during the summer, which is kind of their busy season, there's a, a bunch of people that come to the island, but the rest of the year, I think there's only like 300 people who live on the island. So it'll be it'll be fun. We're just getting away. My mother in law is going with us. My niece is going with us, and very it'll good. be good. Yeah. Okay. But you're going somewhere too. Yeah, we are going to Asheville, North Carolina. We have been there before. We went, actually, this is a funny story. We went maybe six or seven years ago as a last minute second choice mm -hmm. because I had booked a family trip for us to go to Quebec City and did not realize until the day before we were supposed to leave that my kids' passports, I don't remember if they had expired or they, they were within the six months. You know, you're... You're not really supposed to let your passports get within six months of expiration because they can turn you away. So I freaked out a little bit and I called around to try to find out, are they really going to turn us away? And apparently Canada will. They will not let you enter. Not because they necessarily care about your passport being almost expired, but they <laughs> they are concerned about the United States not letting you back in. Ah, uh. So we had to cancel that trip and which I have felt badly about my stupidity with not checking my kids passports but those things kind of sneak up on you because those yeah. are only five years instead of 10 years yeah anyway so we ended up going to Asheville North Carolina which ended up being a very nice little trip but we are going back and this time 
we are taking my sister and her husband and I'm looking forward to it. I have all new books about the uh, uh, <laughs> Western North Carolina mountains that I want to read. You know how I am. I know. I do not have any books about Kelly's Island, nor do I plan to read any <laughs> about I Kelly's know. Island. Unless I happen upon, I, I assume there'll be some kind of bookstore or something. So maybe I'll come upon an author who's written a book. After this, I'm going to get on, I'm going to get on the Google. I'm going to get on the Google, Carrie, and I'm going to look up <laughs> books set on Lake Erie and see what I come up with. <laughs> Speaking of traveling, have you gotten one of those TSA pre-check no. numbers? You should do that. Yeah. Chris and I did it mm-hmm. and he wanted to do it. And I'm like, oh. I mean, I mean, yes, it sounds like it's a good idea and why not? But it's also like, it's just another thing to do. Another appointment you have to go to take all your documents. And I thought, is it really going to be that big of a deal? But I will say that on our way back from Italy, it probably (laughs) kept us from missing a flight. Really? Yep. Wow. Because we were running through the airport and we had the TSA pre-check, which Uh means you know, we could go through the shorter line. Right. When we got to our gate, they were doing last call. Like almost as soon as we got on the plane, they closed the doors. Wow. And had we not had that TSA pre-check, we would have missed that flight. I'm sure of it. Wow. So it's worth doing and it costs a little bit of money. I don't remember. I think maybe like 50 bucks or something. Another one of Amy's travel tips. (laughs) (laughs) That would be our next uh, radio show slash podcast adventure. Check your kids' passports, expiration dates, get the TSA pre-check. Yes. Now, I I do think you learned an important lesson that I usually try to do, especially if I'm going overseas, (laughs) is make sure you have at least some extra underpants in your carry-on bag. You learned that lesson the hard way. I did learn that lesson the hard way. Yep. They lost our luggage on our way to Italy. When we got to Florence, it was not there. And so we did get it within 24 hours, but we did spend a lot of our first day very jet lagged, just trying to track down a replacement outfit, you know, like Mm -hmm. underwear, a shirt, socks, uh, toothbrush, and the um, concierge at our hotel sent us to what they called a department store, which it was a department store, but it was a department store like Saks Fifth Avenue. Oh. <laughs> and so I'd found this t-shirt for Chris. And when I looked, it was like 295 euros. And I'm like, okay, we're out of here. All right, I, am, right. I am looking for like Cheapo. You're looking for the Walmart of Florence, right? I'm looking for the Walmart of Florence. (laughs) Absolutely. So we're wandering around, you know, the city heart of Florence trying to find something. Finally, we found a a store called Yamame. It seemed kind of like a H&M. It wasn't Walmart cheap, but it was you know, affordable. And of course there was this very nice, you know, Italian clerk who talked to me into buying, buy two, get one free bras and underwear. And so I came back with the, I mean, I don't know. I, I was jet lagged. I'm just like, I just need underwear. Yes. Right. Give me the, give me a, 10 pairs of underwear. That seems like a good idea. <laughs> but of course, and my husband was doing the same thing upstairs in the men's department. And of course it seems like everybody is a little bit smaller in Italy. I mean, we're not, huge people but we're not tiny people either and of course when we got back all of the underwear it fits but it's just like a little bit too snug <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's a fun travel fun travel memory yeah but not at that point because I, I think I remember the text you sent and there was some cussing in there <laughs> you were not happy <laughs> well you know All this talk about travel does relate to Donna Gordon's book, What Ben Franklin Would Have Told Me, because in that book, the two main characters actually go on a trip. Uh, They have to fly and they go to visit Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia. Good. Let's talk with Donna. Donna Gordon, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. 
So Donna, when we first read a blurb of your book, it was very intriguing because there were all these, what seemed like dissimilar subjects that you were pulling together. And so it was a real pleasure to read it. Carrie has finished your book. I'm about halfway through and really enjoying it. But could you give our listeners a little summary of your novel, What Ben Franklin Would Have Told Me? Sure. My novel tells the story of a 13-year-old boy named Lee who has progeria, which is a premature aging disease. And his caretaker, Tomas, who's a survivor of Argentina's dirty war. Tomas had been among the disappeared in Argentina during the military dictatorship under Jorge Videla. And he comes to actually Newark, New Jersey and becomes Lee's caretaker. Lee is not completely incapacitated, but he's he's aging at an accelerated rate. He, he started to show signs of it when he was two. He lives with his single mother, Cass, who's in a part-time makeup artist on Broadway. And Lee's caretaker, who he's had for many years, has just left. So the novel opens with Tomas having just arrived on the scene and Lee deciding whether or not he wants to uh, keep him or fire him. And then the story proceeds from there. You've done a a lot of writing that has been published in tons of different publications, the Boston Globe magazine, Plowshares and others. But what Ben Franklin would have told me is your debut novel. So what made you decide to move from short stories to to a full novel? Well, I actually started out as a poet. I was a uh, Stegner fellow at Stanford as a poet and had published a lot of poetry and then my sentences began to get longer. That's sort of how, <laughs> how, it, how it happened. And this came prose. It was also sort of the era when Jane Phillips had written a collection of prose poems called Black Tickets. And I was somewhat influenced by those. There were stories that happened all at once in a hurry, poetic burst. And so I was somewhat influenced by those stories. And I wanted to say more. Well, I feel that poetry was amazing for me and that it was a great form of expression. I somehow sensed that I was heading in a different direction and that I wanted to tell more of a story that had more of a plot and setting and characters that I could spend more time in. And so that shift started to happen for me. I mean, moving from from poetry to novel, what were some of the challenges that you experienced switching from one style to another? It was actually really difficult. I had to sort of feel my way. I sensed where I was going. Once I realized what my story was about with the novel, with what Ben Franklin would have told me, I was able to structure it as a journey story because they were traveling from one place to another. And that helped me structure it in a way that made sense. And I I felt like it was an expansive development for me And I felt like I needed it at the time. I felt like I needed that range of expression. And I I wanted to create a world that had a lot of dimension. And I wanted to help my characters on their journey. So it all sort of happened organically. But at the same time, I had to really be mindful of the structure. Amy and I have discussions sometimes about poetry and, and about how you know, because you, you don't have as much space that the word choices, you know, it it seems to us anyway, and we're not poets unless Amy has a secret gig I don't know about, but, um, you know, that the word choices have to be so precise because you don't have the space to sort of waste words. I'm just curious whether, you know, as you were writing the novel, did you find yourself getting maybe stuck on, you know, some of those things like word choices that you might have focused on a lot with your poetry and having to sort of go, okay, let that go. Let's move on to plot and character development. I think by the time I got to the novel, I had also already written several stories. I have a a collection in process called Lesser Saints. And so I think by having struggled and moved from sort of prose poem into more of a I won't say a conventional story, but a more structured story. I understood how to structure the novel. It was liberating in a way because as opposed to a short story, I had more time to take my characters places and have them experience things and develop emotions. 
So it was kind of exciting to give myself license to do that. I can't say it was easy, but, and I went through <laughs> several revisions and I, I really did ask myself a lot of questions in order to make sure that it was more than a short story in order to really develop it. So your novel, it touches on a couple of really big topics, but the first one that we come across is that that Lee has a a condition called progeria that causes babies and children to age rapidly. And some people might know it as Benjamin Button disease. So what made you pick this as the condition that one of the two main characters deals with? Well, actually, I had a couple of life experiences that helped to create that character. I had volunteered at a camp in Maine, Camp Sunshine, for kids who had life-threatening illnesses and their families. And I had volunteered as a photographer there for the camp. And I met a boy who had progeria. I had never seen anyone with that before. But after I finished working there, he stayed with me. And it was really riveting to have met him and seen him and started caring about him. And at that time, less was known about progeria. It affects about one in four million children. And they often only live to about 15. They tend to die of heart attacks and stroke because they have arterial sclerosis. But I really started to get interested in progeria and I had taken photographs of a boy there and I kept looking at them and thinking about him. Well, then, you know, the other big issue relates to Tomas. He's the least caretaker and his experience as a victim of Argentina's dirty war, where his wife and daughter may or may not have been killed. So you also have had some experience with that. Right. So I had done a project with Amnesty International where I interviewed and photographed 15 people on their speakers list. And those people were from all over the world. But when I met them, I met them between New York and Maine and Washington and Philadelphia. I did meet two people from Argentina who had been among the disappeared. The Dirty War took place in Argentina between 1976 and 1983 when there was a military dictatorship under Jorge Videla, and about 3,000 people had been abducted off the street and put in these basically concentration camps for so-called crimes against the government. And it was just such a riveting story to me that somehow I found myself putting the two characters together. It was completely unexpected. I had been thinking about the boy I met in Maine, and I had been thinking about the people I met from Argentina. And somehow they converged. And I didn't know at first how the story was going to develop, but somehow they seemed to belong together, even though they seemed so different. Somehow they sort of gravitated towards one another in my imagination. I'm wondering, you know, these characters, Lee with Progerion, Tomas from Argentina, where their issues and sort of meet and merge is in Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the novel. And and that's the place they go on a trip. Cass, because of her work responsibilities, isn't able to go. And the reason that Lee wants to to visit these places is because he has this love of Ben Franklin. So, you know, one of the things that was intriguing about your book is there's not a whole lot of novels that I'm aware of that bring up somebody from history like Ben Franklin as, as sort of this focal piece in the novel. So, so why Ben Franklin? Well, Lee is alone a lot. He's precocious. He's homeschooled. He's got to figure out a way how to get by in life. He has a great sense of humor and he's drawn to American history and he's drawn to the humor and inventions of Ben Franklin. He keeps him with him as a a sort of an invisible friend who he sort of goes to with questions about his life and his world and he gains comfort there. And so I just felt that It was a way for him to survive in the world. And Ben Franklin is such a luminary in history that there was a lot of a lot of material there, a lot of life, a lot of inventions, and he sort of inspires Lee to go on living. Lee also has a pet Vietnamese pot-bellied pig named Patrick. And I think I sort of invented him for comic relief because the stories of both Lee and Tomas are so serious and you know, the threat of death and the idea of torture for Tomas 
and his his difficult past. So I also added in the Vietnamese pot-bellied pig who they adopt from a place called Little Orphan Hammies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I love that name. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah. So I mean, I just started to the world started to build and build on itself. And I have always been a fan of Ben Franklin. And as an inventor, I thought of Lee as an inventor also. So they seem to fit together well. And Lee gets a lot of support from his knowledge of American history. It gives him some structure in the world as well. So that started happening. And I always loved in the book a few times, he says, what would Ben Franklin do when he's puzzled about what to do in certain situations, Uh, which I thought was cute. In a lot of ways, this book seems like a, I wouldn't say it's a buddy comedy, but it's sort of like a buddy journey. You know, these two people who are kind of thrown together when they go on the trip, they don't know each other very well. And in fact, Lee has, his initial impression of Tomas is not great. Like he doesn't really like him. But then as the story goes on, you know, they, they come to understand each other and find that they actually have some things in common. So is that sort of the way you thought of it as like a a buddy uh, road trip adventure? Pretty much. I mean, it didn't start out that way because Tomas deceives Lee in the beginning. And when they arrive in Washington, they immediately, they don't go to their friend Margaret's apartment right away. um, Tomas takes them on a detour in a cab to a part of town that's pretty run down that has nothing to do with where Lee thought they were going. And Tomas is already looking for a connection to someone who might know the whereabouts of his missing wife and child. His wife had been also abducted in Buenos Aires and was imprisoned in a different prison from Tomas and was pregnant at the time. So when Tomas was released from prison through the help of Amnesty International, he finds no whereabouts of his wife and child. So his ulterior motive for taking Lee on the trip to Washington is to look for his wife and child. So once there, he at first deceives Lee and Lee is very disappointed and upset and feels betrayed. But then Tomas has to tell him the truth. And together they join forces to look for Tomas's wife and child. So at that point, it becomes something of a detective story where they are on their way to feeling close to one another, but it doesn't happen automatically. At first there's a lot of distrust and then they sort of find parts of one another that they had no idea were there and they do become close and inseparable in ways. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, with bringing all of those different things together, the progeria, the dirty war, Ben Franklin, I'm just trying to imagine making all those puzzle pieces fit together. So, you know, we've talked to different writers and and we've talked to people about, are you a planner? Are you a pantser? So what was that sort of like for you? Did you, you know, some writers have like spreadsheets and they have post-it notes all over the wall. How did you fit those different things together? You know, it has happened in the blink of an eye. I mean, I had been living with ideas about each of those characters in my mind for a while and the idea of Cass and even the pot-bellied pig and Ben Franklin. And then I just realized I needed to set them in motion. And because I had interviewed a couple from Argentina, there was a man and a woman I met and they had been separated. They had been in different prisons. The woman wasn't pregnant, but they were separate from one another. And they did become reunited after a number of years. I sort of had that mulling in my mind and it just all came together. So no, I didn't I didn't have a series of post-its. I started writing a scene. I started writing the scene of them being together in Washington and being on the journey. And it just sort of came together. It did sort of happen almost like a burst of experience for me in my mind. And I put them together and they were on the journey and they, I'm not going to give anything away. I sort of knew what would happen. And I just started writing to that. I mean, there were a lot of changes along the way in terms of how they felt about one another and different obstacles along the journey. But I sort of knew pretty quickly that they were going to be on the journey together and where they would need to go. 
I think that's one of the most interesting and most frustrating things about writing, especially because I, I work in, in with middle schoolers and high schoolers to teach writing. And yeah. I think that so much of writing happens within, as you said, within the writer's head. Some writers do have post-its. Some people do take notes or have spreadsheets or whatever they may use. But, you know, we've talked to a lot of writers where, so much of writing is the, the thinking, you know, the thinking of the writing, the planning, where's the story going to go? Oops, that's not going to work. And I think when you're teaching writing, you can't explain that part. I just think it's really fascinating to kind of hear about how different writers, what their process is. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's not a linear path. You know, I, I think that for me, I tried to write a complete scene at a time if I could, because I needed to understand the emotions that were happening within that scene. So I tried to stay with it, even in the draft time, just to get the complete moment down. And then of course there was a ton of revision and rethinking in order to connect what happened, but I, I just tried to stay with it and be with my characters and be true to my characters as I went along. You mentioned Cass, so, so that's Lee's mother, Tomas's boss, right. um, and she allows them to, to go on this trip. There's a, a mix-up at work, and, and she's unable to go. So one of the things, you know, I was just talking about teaching middle and, and high school students about writing, and one of the things that I always tell my students when we're reading a, a novel or talking about a story is about, in a story kids who are orphaned or whose parents are out of the picture, that's really important because parents as a general rule are buzzkills and sort of ruin the plot <laughs> yeah. and the character development of the kid. So why was it important for you to include Cass's voice in the story, even though, you know, she wasn't there traveling with Lee and Tomas and Lee and Tomas wouldn't have had the same experience or the same friendship development or their own individual developments had she been there. But why was it important to include her voice? Well, practically speaking, and Lee Lee is not an orphan. He, you know, the, the, the fact of his mother exists, and so that was the departure point. But I also felt like she was a big part of his life, and her experience being the mother was important to include as well because she, her life was so affected by caring for her son. And I felt, in a way, I was being selfish there because I'm a mother as well, and. I put myself in the position of how would a mother feel and react and what would she carry emotionally? How would she cope and survive? And what did she give up? What did she lose? What did she gain? How did she feel about it all? So that was one aspect. And then she just simply didn't belong on that trip because it was really at that point when Lee needed to become himself and take over and sort of gain the pride and importance of being so significant to Tomas in solving the mystery. And so that was where Lee became himself and sort of became important in ways that were bigger than himself that made his life matter. So that's why I didn't include her on the trip, but there was some accountability there that Lee and Tomas had to cast. And when they lie to her and deceive her, you know, they feel really badly about it. And then when they get home, they need to, you know, come clean and tell the truth. And so it's all part of the story. Thinking about that makes me wonder how many great experiences my kids could have had if I had been a <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, you know I, what I mean? Well, mine are all grown now. My oh. youngest is in college. But I just think about, you know, you know, you're worried about not being a good mom and you want to make sure you're attentive and know what's going on. But sometimes a lot of the learning that they do to growing up is when you're not around. And I agree completely. So this novel is in many ways about time. Lee doesn't have very much time left in his future. And Tomas is, he's kind of caught up in his past. And we all agree that we should savor the present, but sometimes that's easier said than done. So how did you manage to showcase this issue of time without it sounding sentimental. Each of the characters was very practical in their own way, and they had to accept the truth. Lee had progeria, and there was nothing he could do about it. His, his best friend, Kira, had just died of the disease and early on in the book before they go on the journey, and that just brought home the truth to him that he didn't have much time left in life. 
And, and that's why his work to help Tomas became so important. It made those last months of his life, those last weeks actually, much more important because he was, he was doing something important for Tomas to help him and that all mattered. And Tomas doesn't really know what happened. This time when he was in prison for about two years is a blur to him. And he comes out, he's lost so much. He lost his wife and child. He doesn't know what happened to them. And the world is different. And he, he doesn't think much of Lee at first. It's just a means of making money and keeping him going. But then they start to converge and they start to understand one another. And there's a sadness there that they share about Lee knowing that his future isn't long and Tomas having the pain of the time he lost. So they sort of have compassion for one another and they merge in a way they couldn't have predicted. I mean, we're talking about all these things which are really heavy. I mean, just, you know, a child with a terminal illness and a man whose wife and daughter were kidnapped and possibly killed and a mother, you know, who's having to watch her child face a premature death. But the novel is anything but sad. And I imagine that's a difficult tightrope to kind of walk. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think it begins with Lee and his character and his personality and, and who he is. I mean, I feel that he has a huge heart and understanding about life way beyond his years. He, he's got a great sense of humor, his involvement with Ben Franklin's life and ideas and humor sort of set the story aloft a little bit away from some of those difficult themes. And then the introduction of Patrick, his Vietnamese pot-bellied pig, who has a certain way of behaving and his antics, which sort of takes some attention away from the sadness. And then the relationship with Tomas just kind of takes off and they become friends and they're happy to be together in certain ways. And I think my language as well, I think Lee's perspective is often humorous and entertaining. And so I think all those things came together to make it more than a sad story. I think it's sort of an animated story. And I think some of the writing, the language itself takes it away from being um, so serious. I really liked it for that, that, you know, because I tend to get sort of frustrated with books that are too happy. I tend to be sort of Debbie Downer a little uh, bit. So, yeah. But I, I know that there's a lot of people who, you know, use books for an escape. You know, they, they want to escape the sadness and the drudgery. So I really appreciated how those were blended together in the book, you know, that it was, it was lighthearted at times, but it was also tragic at times. And so I, I thought that was really well done and a, oh. and a powerful way to do it. So thank you. Yeah. I think the characters just became so real to me that I needed to do right by them. You know, I, they were so dimensional in my mind, the way they came together that I needed to bring them to life in the best possible way. One thing that, that I didn't ask earlier, and I probably should have, you know, you, you talked about your inspiration, meeting the boy with progeria and interviewing Argentinians. Did you have to do any other research or reading to kind of flesh out the setting and, and where you wanted to place the novel? I did. I, I met another Argentinian, Alicia Partnoy, who wrote a book called The Little School. She had been imprisoned for more than a year, she was separated from her family. She was blindfolded. She was kept in the dark. And she wrote an account of that, which I read. There's also a book of poems called You Can't Drown the Fire, Latin American Women Writing in Exile. And there was a woman from Chile, Veronica Denegri, whom I met in Washington. And she had a horrendous experience. Her son had been burned alive in Chile when he was a student. And there were a lot of stories of horrific things that happened. And I felt very naive when I interviewed people. I photographed them and interviewed, but their stories had been so terrible that I felt like, why should they trust me? Why should they talk to me? And the answer was that they, they wanted to have more witnesses. They needed people to be a witness and that validated them. And it spread the word of you know, what had happened and what shouldn't happen. And so a lot of what I was trying to do in the book, other than tell a story, was to promote 
awareness of human rights abuses and also, you know, progeria. But I felt I was carrying a lot of the weight of a lot of people's messages and worlds that I wanted to do justice to. So I did take it very seriously. And I, I did honestly feel, I don't know if privilege is the right word. It's a little bit stereotypical, but I did feel privileged and I did feel like I was a messenger of some kind to talk about these things. And that was also part of writing the book. Well, I know that in addition to being a writer, you are an artist as well. So your days sound like they're very (laughs) steeped in creativity. So does your life as a visual artist impact your life as a writer or vice versa? Yeah, I think they overlap quite a bit. I'm going to be having a solo show soon in June at the Concord Art Association of some prints, lithographs that I've made. And I was just writing my artist statement and talking about that. And I would say that there's a strong overlap and it's it's sort of impossible to measure or separate. I would say that I've been doing the writing longer than the art. The art I've been doing just really for a couple of years, but it's sort of taken off and it feels very powerful to me as well. And I think that the way I write, uh, I use a lot of metaphor and imagery and I see things visually. When I was writing the scenes for what Ben Franklin would have told me, I tried to put myself in specific rooms and settings and look around and notice the things I saw, almost as if I was drawing them or painting them. But that's how my mind works to sort of create them in a very detailed way. So I think for whatever reason, I seem to have sort of a a tactile way of thinking, which involves both words and images. I had done some drawing when I was in high school, but nothing since. And then I was a um, a writing fellow at the Vermont Studio Center in 2018. And they had uh, a life model you could draw, a nude model. And there were a lot more visual artists there than writers, but I started to draw the model every day. And when I came back from doing that, I found myself wanting to do more. So that sort of got me going in the visual art world. And now I, I really am interested in printmaking and painting. It's, it seems like doing the, the visual art as well would maybe help you see things in maybe a different way to the way that, like you were saying, like you imagine that you're in the room, but I would think it'd make you notice textures and colors and, and different things that you now can describe in words more, uh, thoughtfully, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Do you you feel like it helps you in that way? I do. I think they feed off of one another. It's sometimes overwhelming. I have, you know, like a very strong sensory response to things. And sometimes when I look at things, I imagine myself, you know, drawing them. I imagine the lines that they're made of. And sometimes there's a merging of sound and sense, you know, with poetry. I mean, who knows where poetry actually comes from? I mean, some poems feel like bursts of sudden connections and others are crafted in a more sort of sequential, logical way. But I think for me, there's a lot of bursts. There's a lot of sort of coming together of both language and imagery that fuel the writing and the art making. That makes a lot of sense because I I used to do some writing, but I think when you're writing or when you're doing art, it's a little bit like a muscle doing it every day or the practicing helps you make that muscle stronger. And I think when you're doing two creative things like that, it's like a double workout of those muscles. (laughs) I think that's true. And it's a bit much to sustain sometimes, but so far I have the energy for it. Well, we're so glad that you have the energy for it because we both really are enjoyed your book. Well, I think this you. is a good place for us to take a break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Donna Gordon and with Carrie. And Carrie, I have been gone for over a week and I want to know what you're reading because we really didn't, we didn't talk. I know. 
you know, usually as, as I mentioned, uh, you know, I tend to like heavier, you know, books that they're a little bit meatier, but I stumbled upon a book that just sounded fun. And so I listened to it as an audiobook. It's called the vampire knitting club by <laughs> Nancy Warren. And I found it on Libby through the, the Louisville free public library. And it was quick listen and I really enjoyed it. So it is the story of Lucy. She's a 27 year old young woman who goes to Oxford, England to visit her grandmother only to discover that her grandmother who owned a knitting shop has died. And Lucy, you know, she, she gets this, this terrible news and she soon discovers several things. Number one, her grandmother had actually become quite friendly with a local group of knitting vampires who would <laughs> use her shop for their knitting meetings. So that's first piece of information. Number two, she learns that these vampires not only frequent the knitting shop, but actually live beneath it. Number three, her grandmother was actually murdered. So her grandmother was in her 80s. She did not die, you know, a peaceful death of old age, but she was killed. And number four, Lucy learns that one of these friendly vampires saved her grandmother from dying by making her grandmother a vampire. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so Lucy has to wrap her head around all this information while also now trying to solve the mystery of who killed her grandmother to begin with? So during the course of the story, she also discovers some surprising things about herself and some special abilities that she has. So this was a light, fun, quick listen on audiobook. And, you know, I don't knit, but I do crochet and I'm always game to listen to a book about vampires. So <laughs> I would recommend it. It's just totally fun. Sort of a nice palate cleanser book. So it's called The Vampire Knitting Club by Nancy Warren. And it's the first in the series. So if you're a person who loves series and it might be something that I pick up again, you know, when I just need like a quick book, you know, maybe after reading something that's really heavy. Oh, that sounds, that sounds awesome. I yeah. mean, I'm all about these quirky combinations. Yeah, for sure. So Donna, what have you been reading? Well, it's tough to just name one, but I recently read Ishiguro's Clara and the Sun. It's a beautifully written book and it's set in the, in the near future. And it features a girl who is ill and she and her family buy an AF, an artificial friend named Clara. And Clara is a companion for her. She's almost human. She comes and lives with the family and she, her way of observing the world is almost like that of an architect. She sees buildings as squares and blocks and she, she objectifies the world, but she winds up being a very close friend to Josie, the girl who's not well. And it's just a really interesting story of what's human and near human and how this artificial friend becomes involved with the family in ways that become very important. So I really love that book. I've heard a lot of great things about that book. I have never read anything by that author, but that sounds intriguing. But I must say that, you know, some of the basic elements of the story you just described sound similar to the book that you wrote, just with the sick child and sort of this companion, obviously not the science fiction-y part of it, but that's kind of interesting. That is interesting. That's a really interesting observation. I made a painting actually where I feel like I conjured the character of Clara and it was a very, very powerful experience for me to sort of create her when I didn't really know what she looked like, but to create her from how I imagined she looked. There wasn't much physical description of her in the story. It was more of an emotional core that came forward. And I, I did, after I read the book, Probably just a few days later, I was painting and I, I didn't realize that it was her, but, but then I did. Clara and the Sun, S-U-N, and the, the author is Ishiguro. And, and he, he wrote, he wrote Remains Never of the, Let Me Go. Never Let Me Go, Remains yeah. of the Day. Yeah, yeah. His, the writing builds, I mean, it starts out very simple, very kind of plain spoken, but the drama builds through the layering of that language. It's, it took me by surprise. I didn't like it at first, but then it really was very compelling. Very good. Well, Amy, I know you were in Italy, so you were mostly eating, drinking wine, and walking. But did you squeeze in any books 
during your time. I absolutely did. And I think last week on the podcast, I talked a little about my upcoming trip and I was wanting to read books that were set in Italy. And so I finished three of those types of books while I was there and they were all fun. But the one that I want to mention is Six Days in Rome by Francesca Giacco. And this is a new release. It came out at the beginning of May. And one of the destinations on our trip was Rome. And this was the perfect book for me to read while I was there. So in this book, our protagonist, Amelia, has recently had a very bad breakup with her boyfriend, who she found out is married. And he wants to try to make a serious go at reconciliation with his wife. So months before this breakup, though, they had booked a trip to Rome for six days, a city that her lover had been to many times, and he was anxious to show her around. But after the breakup, Amelia decides to go anyway by herself. So this book is part Amelia's journey to heal from this emotionally tragic event in her life, but it's also an exploration of the city of Rome. And a lot of what happens in this book is going on inside Amelia's mind. She's wrestling with issues about her father, the lover who jilted her, and herself. And then she meets a new man in Rome, and for a few short days, she is exploring someone new. So first, let me say that this book is not going to be for everyone because it's most definitely character-driven instead of plot-driven. Not a lot happens. But it is completely sensual. Francesca's descriptions of the sights and the sounds, the food, the colors, the atmosphere of Rome are spot on. And I was reading this uh, at the tail end of our trip, and I recognized the places that she was talking about. And I've seen some reviews compare this book in some ways to Sally Rooney's novel Normal People because of the angst about romantic relationships. And I can see that a bit, but if you crossed it with a wonderful travel memoir. So as Amelia is experiencing Rome on her own, she's also on her personal journey to heal from her heartbreak. I would recommend this book for people who like literary fiction, don't mind books where not a lot happens, but this is a great one for an armchair traveler who wants to experience a little taste of Rome. It is called Six Days in Rome by Francesca Giacco, and she is also a debut novelist. This is her first book. Very good. Lots of good books to add to your TBR. We are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, Donna Gordon's going to answer her three in the third degree. (laughs) All right. We are back with Donna Gordon, author of What Ben Franklin Would Have Told Me. You ready for question number one, Donna? Fire away. All right. What was the worst job you ever had and what made it so bad? Okay. I would say one of them is I had a job demonstrating vacuum cleaners and, and it was at a, um, a Macy's sale in Palo Alto, California, while I was doing my fellowship at Stanford. And I was given an apron and a pin and a slew of vacuum cleaners, each of which had different features. And so I had a packet of synthetic dirt that I had to pour on a rug and then demonstrate and vacuum up. And the worst part was I I had to sell one to a a minister from a church and it it had a headlight on it. It was the one model that had the headlight and, and he came looking for it so that he could have someone be able to see into the darkness of the church and do some vacuuming (laughs) there. Um, There was another portable vacuum cleaner that had such powerful suction. I had to hold it up to the wall and let it cling to the wall with the (laughs) suction. I was grateful to have the job because I needed the money, but it was definitely a low point in my employment (laughs) experience. (laughs) How old were you? I think I was, I was 21. Okay. Because the thing I'm thinking about, you know, when you're talking about this, it's amazing to me. If somebody had told me when I was in my 20s that I would do that, I would have been like, oh my gosh. But now I'm almost 50 and I'm like, well, you know, it is kind of important to have a good vacuum cleaner. Yeah, it's a necessary tool. It wasn't a painful experience. It was just, it wasn't my best job. 
Yeah. No, no, I get it. My husband did something similar when he was, I think it was maybe one of the summers in college, but he had to go. It was one of those things where you go door to door to try to Uh, sell vacuum cleaners. Oh, that's tough. Yeah, which is even worse. At least you had a Macy's, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, that's a good one. Carrying around synthetic dirt is pretty, <laughs> pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so question number two. So I was reading your bio that you have up. I don't know that it's your on your personal website. It might have been on your publisher website, but it said yeah. that you were a chronic class ditcher in high school. I want you to tell us a little bit about this and you know, the positive or ill effects? Yeah. Well, I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which was about half an hour by bus from New York City. And I had something of a dysfunctional family life. And I also went to an all-girls public high school, which was sort of an inner city difficult experience. I remember going to the bathroom and someone threw pennies at me. She demanded money. And it was sort of a difficult school experience. So I learned that one could be absent 45 days a year without (laughs) before being expelled. So I, in 10th grade, I started doing that and I would calculate the days and I'd still do my schoolwork and get it done. But I did have a lot of adventures. I'd often go on the bus into New York City and that's sort of where I got a different kind of education. And I was very interested in art and museums. And I would go to the Museum of Modern Art and the Metropolitan and the Guggenheim. And once I met somebody there who had tickets to the Dick Cavett show, we went to the Dick Cavett show. This was many years ago. And I just sort of roamed around and got to know the city. I spent time in Central Park. And I think it fueled my imagination. I think it gave me another world of things to learn that I wouldn't have gotten in school. And so there were a lot of benefits to it. The truant officer did come to our house and I did have different conversations with the administrators at at my school, but I I still continue to do that. So So I don't regret it. Did you do that every year? Yes, I did. And I know it seems like it's not so great, but at the time it was really important to me and it was a good way. Maybe I'm a little bit like my character, Lee. Maybe I needed, you know, to have some other aspect of my imagination going to get through some of those years. Well, and the art sounded like your your love of art started, you know, earlier in your life and it's just yeah, sort of when, continued on. Yeah. When I was in sixth grade, I read Irving Stone's The Agony and the Ecstasy about Michelangelo. And I I wrote him a letter um, and he wrote me back. And that was really exciting uh, for me. But you're right. I was I was interested in art from an early age. I really was. So what um, what did he write you back? He just said he admired my letter and that he was glad that I like Michelangelo just, and he signed it and he sent me a photo of himself and it was just nice. It was. Well, Donna, it sounds like if you're ever looking for a uh, subject or idea for another novel, your own experience uh, that, that you just shared sounds like it would make a pretty, a pretty cool um, outline for a novel. So actually, now that you say that I have been working on something called cave paintings, another novel, and it is about those years and some really? of those, yeah, and some of those experiences. So you're very perceptive. And you're right. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Last question. What is a scent that always makes you happy or brings back a special memory? I, I'd say that's fresh lilacs. When I was growing up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, we had we had lilacs in our backyard, and I just have such wonderful memories of in, of inhaling them and. They had a certain way of being in the sunlight and it created a mood and a texture. And now here in Cambridge, I also have lilacs and I really anticipate they're one of the first flowers to bloom here in April. And I cut them and bring them inside and they just, the color, the purple, the white, the smell, it's all pretty wonderful for me. Lilac is one of my favorite scents. We've got a, a tree lilac in our front yard and it's blooming right now. And oh, wow. so every time you step outside, you get, you're just like a wash with, with the scent. So yeah. 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 I feel the same way. 
Well, Donna, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you about your creativity, your art, and your novel, What Ben Franklin Would Have Told Me. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's really been great to be able to try to talk about it and to get your feedback. So look forward to the podcast. You can find Donna Gordon on Instagram at DonnaGordon8994 and at her website, DonnaGordon.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.